friend of mine recently asked me, she said, I read The Plague by Albert Camus a few days earlier. One of the main characters, Father Panelo, insists that the plague is a scourge sent by God to those who have hardened their hearts against him. This sounds really cruel to me. What do you think? And as I thought about how to answer her question, I realized, you know, this is, this is a question or a form of a question that I think is on a lot of people's minds. And I wanted to, to share my thoughts with, with our church, with the broader community, and with lots of people. So as I answer um, my friend's question, I, um, I wanted to not only respond to her, but, but respond to all of us who are thinking now, um, how do we make sense of, of the coronavirus? Is God cruel? Um, and how do, just how do we think about this? What does the Bible have to say? Um, so I wanted to, to answer, um, what do I think of Father Panelo's remark um, by looking at what does the Bible say about, um, about these things? So I want us to ask three questions um, and, and let the Bible give us answers. So first, how do we make sense of disasters? What is the Bible's perspective? Um, second, in the Bible, what do we see when God does use historical events to bring judgment? Because if you read the Bible, you see that there are cases. So what do we see when we look at those events? And finally, um, what is God's primary posture toward hardened hearts? If we look at the story of the Bible, um, what is God's posture? Does he primarily send scourges or does he do something else? So first, how do we make sense of disasters? Because um, that's, a, that's a broad question. That's really what's going on. In, in, in the plague by Albert Camus, everybody is trying to make sense of this plague. Um, why is it happening? Um, and everybody has different answers. And, you know, I think today, similarly, people um, are asking or will be asking, uh, how do we make sense of this coronavirus? Why is it happening? What, and what does it mean? Um, so first, uh, the Bible does not teach that every scourge is from God. It does not teach that everything bad that happens is God sending judgment on us. Um, so there's a couple of great examples where people directly ask Jesus. So in John 9, uh, there's a blind man and people ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because their assumption was if he's blind, somebody's responsible. And Jesus said neither. It had nothing to do with them, but this man was blind so that God could be glorified and Jesus healed him. Um, and another time in Luke 13, um, they're telling, uh, the disciples are telling him a story about um, these tragedies that had happened nearby, um, some people who had been persecuted by, by the Romans, some people, 18 people that had a tower fall on them, and they asked Jesus, were they worse sinners than others? And Jesus just flat out said no. So the Bible does not teach that Bad things happen to bad people because God is mad at them. Um, and I think it's helpful to contrast the biblical view with, with two kind of prevalent alternatives. Um, so one is, is karma or, you know, some form of karmic religions where you get what you deserve. Maybe you did something in this life, maybe in a previous life, but if something bad is happening to you, you did something to deserve it. And... In that view of the world, um, 
there's really not a sense in which you can like shake your fists at what's happening because, you know, if something bad happens, you deserve it. Um, so if, if there's a plague that's come upon your country or the world, well, we deserved it. And what can we say? Um, so there's the, the sort of view of karma. Um, I think sometimes, you know, karma is kind of, sort of has a popular resurgence because people like to think about bad things happening to others and good things happening to themselves, but not necessarily the reverse. Um, so the alternative perspective, and I, the, the one that I think um, is quite, quite operative, but maybe people don't fully believe it all the way down, is that the world is just an accident. There's nothing, there's no personal force behind it. Um, there's no creator. There's just atoms bouncing around. The universe is here. Maybe it's one of thousands, millions of multiverses. Um, and everything just evolved according to impersonal forces and chance. And in such a world, bad things happen. But that's because that's the nature of things. The world seems cruel, but it only seems so. It's just what you would expect from a cold, dead, impersonal place where um, natural selection and the strong eating the weak and um, that's the way that things came to be. If you feel like it's otherwise, that's just chemicals in your brain that you've developed over time um, as an adaptation, um, but it's an illusion. It's not real. Um, and so in that in that view of the world, which um, I think, again, people on some surface level often will sort of appeal to that, but I don't think deep down anybody really, really lives that way, believes that. Um, when tragedy strikes, there's nothing to say. Um, because if you go and you sit in a pond and you watch um, a hawk come and swoop and eat up a frog that was sitting there taking care of its babies. Uh, you know, I guess frogs don't really do that, but you know, whatever. Just describe your tragedy. There's no tragedy in the animal kingdom. When a female octopus eats her male um, octopus that they're mating to, like, and takes, takes him back to her uh, den to devour later, that's just the way it is. And, you know, the fact that it feels different to you um, you're just an accident. Um, your feelings, it's just an accident of nature. Um, and so when tragedy strikes, you've got nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to look. You've got nobody to be mad at. So what, what does the Bible say then? If, if, if Jesus says, you know, this man was not born blind because of his sin, um, well, the Bible says that God created the world good, um, but that it's fallen. Um, it's fallen because we've lost our relationship with God. We've turned away. And when we did that, there was just a cosmic brokenness in the world that everything um, fell apart and is different from how it's meant to be. Um, and so the Bible teaches that there is real injustice, that it's not just people getting always what they deserve. And it's not that it's the impersonal, impersonal natural forces that are always happening, but that injustice and evil and suffering are real. They're not an illusion. They're not, uh, you don't have to change your perspective to see how really this is this or that or good or, and no, evil is evil and suffering is suffering and God is against it and God did not create a world with it. Um, and this is why 
the hope of Christianity is so important because the unique hope of Christianity is not that we escape the world, um, but that God restores the world, um, a resurrected eternity. God promises not no earth, but a new earth, a new earth um, where all the suffering and evil and injustice in this world is wiped away and made up for, and the world is the way it's supposed to be. So when tragedy strikes, we look around and we say, it's not supposed to be this way. And the Bible says, you're right. Um, and that's not an answer to the question of, how do we make sense of this? But if there's not a good God who created all things, we've got nobody to complain to. We've got nowhere to go with our objections that the world should be otherwise. Because um, if the world is just a cold, dead, impersonal place, who do we object to? Why? If everything is just karma, we're getting what we deserve. If the world is just run by um, warring forces of impetuous gods and good and evil and you know who knows what'll win then you know we can't appeal to good is better than evil it just is what it is but if the world was created by a good personal god and if god created the world to be different than it is then we have a place to go when we see the world and say it shouldn't be this way um so that's first how do we make sense of it we don't say it's karma we don't say well there's no such thing as evil and suffering we affirm that there is injustice and there is suffering and that god is against it um, that's why when jesus went to resurrect lazarus he didn't go before the grave and say wait till you see what i'm about to do and bring him back to life he wept and he was full he was billowing in anger um, and you know, you can wonder why was he so angry? He was about to, to bring his friend back to life. He was about to do an amazing thing. He knew it was going to happen. Um, but he was angry because death reigns, um, at this present moment on his good earth, on his good creation. And Jesus, the creator did not make it to be this way. Um, so, uh, the first answer of how do we make sense of disaster is we we can call it disaster and we can know that God did not intend the world to be this way and that he will restore all things. So that's the first question. Second question, um, so when we look at the Bible, we do see God using historical events to bring judgment. Uh, so this is a, a moment where a lot of people get a little uncomfortable because you know, maybe that, that first answer seems to let God off the hook, but then then God does seem to, to bring judgment at times. Um, does God, like Father Penelo, um, just bring a scourge on those who have hardened their hearts? And the answer, I think the overwhelming picture we see in the Bible is that whenever God brings judgment in history, God is first extremely patient and he gives tremendous warning. So God never just, surprise, I'm mad, and he brings judgment. God always first pleads and warns and says, turn back, turn back. Um, so even from the earliest pages, um, God warns Cain. He says, if you do this, sin is crouching, it will devour you. 
God, um, before he brings the flood, God says he saw the evil and he, it, basically 120 years are going to go by before he brings judgment. When God tells Abraham that he will bring judgment on the Amalekites, Amalekites, however you say it, he, he prophesies to Abraham, but not yet. It's going to be more than 400 years until this happens. When God goes before Pharaoh, who, who constantly hardens his heart, God gives Pharaoh 10 plagues before he ultimately destroys Pharaoh. Every time, God gives him an opportunity to do what is right, to let his people go, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says no. Pharaoh, you know, there's plagues, and he says, Moses, tell God to stop. And God stops, and God gives him another chance, ten times. So God is extremely patient, even with Pharaoh. But we see this the most with God's own people. Um, with the Israelites, God spends generations. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet. He says, you have turned away. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. You're going to go into exile. Turn to me or else this will happen. And God sends uh, prophets who say, I'm trying to get your attention by sending you blessings. I'm trying to get your attention by selling, sending you bad things. I'm doing everything I can to get your attention. And if you don't turn, if you don't stop doing injustice, you're going to go into exile. Generations. So I think when we see God using natural disasters, historical events to bring judgment on people who have hardened their hearts, it's only after much patience and much warning and much um, uh, gentle, gracious pleading to turn back. Um, so the picture we get in scripture is not of an impetuous God who just gets angry and decides, you know what, I've had enough with these people. Um, we see a God who is extremely slow to anger, who is extremely measured um, in his judgments, and he's upset because, <laughs> upset, you know, to downplay, um, because the people are doing horrible things. He tells um, Israel, he says, you know, I never thought, I never came to mind to offer your children as burnt sacrifices to these false gods. You have to stop doing this. What you're doing is horrible. And he says, you're oppressing the poor. He says, you're um, abandoning your spouses in, your aban in the process. You're abandoning your children. You're creating a society full of evil and injustice. Turn back. And they don't turn. So I think it's a very different picture than sort of how um, I think how Father Panelo reads, um, just to come back to that example. Um, so when, when we do see God bringing judgment, it's with tremendous patience and after pleading and warning. Um, so finally, I want to ask, um, what is God's primary posture toward hardened hearts? Because it... Because yes, we do see um, God at time bring judgment. But what is God's primary posture? How does God respond to hearts that are hard? Um, 
And I want to draw out a theme that's sort of throughout scripture. And I want to pick up at one of my favorite um, passages, which is in 1 Kings 18. And this is an example where uh, there's a very, very evil king and um, Israel has abandoned God and they're doing terrible stuff. And the prophet Elijah has gone to turn the hearts of the people back. And he's going to, long story short, he prays for God to send fire from heaven to come and consume a sacrifice um, to demonstrate that God is God. And as he prays, um, what he prays is, is fascinating. Um, Elijah prays, he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That, that was Elijah's prayer, that God would answer and turn their hearts back. And, and God answers Elijah, and many of the people fall down and they declare, the Lord, he is God. Um, they turn, they turn to him, they turn away from the evil and they turn to him. Um, and the ministry of Elijah, of turning back hearts, is actually something that's continually promised um, in the Old Testament. So the very last verse um, of, the, of the Old Testament in Malachi, uh, Malachi promises, prophesies, God promises that he will send back Elijah and that Elijah will turn back the hearts of fathers and sons, children and parents, will turn back their hearts. That's the, the, the fulfillment of that promise. And when God is going to you know, fulfill all of his promises um, to his people. Um, and the prophet Ezekiel, he says, um, he promises, he says, God promises that those who have hearts of stone, hard hearts, God will give a heart of flesh. He will give a new heart. So God's overwhelming promise is not, if your heart is stone, I crush you. God's promise is, if your heart is, if your heart is stone, I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a soft heart that is full of love, not full of bitterness. Um, and God promises to dwell in his people personally. So that's the promise of the Old Testament, that Elijah would return. Elijah, who did this great act, calling down fire from heaven, that people would know that God has turned their hearts back. And the New Testament begins with this Elijah-like character who's dressed like Elijah out in the wilderness, eating food like Elijah, um, who's calling people back to God. Um, and, and John the Baptist is later um, associated with Elijah. Jesus says, John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. He is doing the ministry of Elijah. And the point is, Jesus has come to fulfill the promise that God is turning the hearts back. And this is important because we got to ask, how did Jesus fulfill that promise? What did Jesus do? Because Elijah, he was calling down fire from heaven for all to see this great miraculous act of power to see that God was really God. And what Jesus did was he went around proclaiming that God is king. And as he did that, 
he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. Those who were oppressed, he set free. But he said the number one main thing he came to do was go to the cross. He went like Elijah to climb a mountain, but he climbed a mountain not to call down fire for all to see the power of God, but to receive God's wrath against all evil and injustice and sin. Um, remember we started by saying when you look at the world and say it's not the way it's supposed to be, God looks at the world and says it's not the way it's supposed to be. He feels that infinitely more than you and I do. And he poured out on Jesus the holy anger at everything that destroys this earth, um, at everything that destroys the goodness that God created. Um, Isaiah 53, that Jesus bore our sickness and by his wounds we are healed. So when we see a plague like the coronavirus, we don't have a God who's immune. We don't have a God who's not hurt by the evil and suffering in this and the injustice in this world. The only religion in the world in history that tells us that there's a God who has experienced total, complete, real evil and suffering and injustice is Christianity. And that was the main thing Jesus came to do. Jesus came to experience all of the evil and suffering and injustice and our even our sickness, even our sicknesses. And he came to do that to forgive us. And he came to do that so that we could have our hearts turned back to God because we needed more than a display of power. Every single one of us, we, apart from God's work in us, we have hard hearts. Not one of us would choose to turn to God unless God revealed himself to us, unless God poured out his love into our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that was what Jesus came to do. He came to forgive us. He came to take the penalty for all that is wrong in the world. He came to take the scourge, not to bring the scourge upon us. And because Jesus did that, because he rose victorious over the grave, Jesus can send, Jesus did send his Holy Spirit into our hearts to turn us to him, to give us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. And so what a hard heart means on this side of the cross um, would be a heart that looks at what Jesus did somebody who lived a life of perfect sacrifice, um, caring for others, giving his life for the sake of others um, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be loved, so that we could have a relationship with God. A hard heart is looking at that and saying, yeah, no thanks, I don't want any of that. I don't want forgiveness. I don't need forgiveness. I'm fine. I don't want a relationship with you, God. And I think for us to appreciate what that means is to, to think about, imagine a parent who takes care of their, their child, and a good parent, a good parent that lives sacrificially for their child, caring for them and bringing them up and giving of themselves. And when the child is old enough, um, they just go away and say, I don't want anything to do with this parent who's done everything for me. 
um, who's provided everything I need, um, who's given his or herself for my sake um, all, their, all of my life, but now I'm walking away. I don't want a relationship with this person. Um, it wouldn't be enough to say, well, I'll go and do good to other people over there, um, because that's not the way we respond to a personal, sacrificial, loving relationship. Somebody who has cared for us, um, the right response is that we um, desire a relationship with them, especially when they desire a relationship um, with us. So, how does God respond to hardened hearts? Well, in um, Peter's lecture, second letter, um, second Peter, he's sort of responding to this sort of question. Um, people are saying, when is, when is God going to act? Because things aren't the way that they ought to be. And Peter says this, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some counselor lists but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What Peter is saying is, if you look at the world and say, it shouldn't be this way, God needs to fix it now. What we don't realize, we don't have God's perspective, and, and Peter is telling us, God is being patient because he wants everybody whose heart is hard to turn so we don't see God sending a scourge on hardened hearts. We say God patiently waiting because it is God's desire for all to turn to him. And he has already sent Jesus to do everything we need. Um, all we need to do is, is respond. So to conclude, how do we think about the coronavirus? How do we think about make sense of COVID-19? Well, if it's from God, it would be as a wake-up call. It wouldn't be as a final nail-in-the-coffin punishment, that's it, I'm through with you. But it would be God offering us smelling salts for us to, to wake up and see you are not in control of this world and everything can be taken in an instant and this world is not the way it's meant to be. And I think too many of us, we get lulled into believing we can have our little kingdom here. We can have the perfect life. We just have to work hard enough. We just need to cooperate enough. Whatever it is, we really we live for comfort. We live for pleasure. We live for family. And all of these things, boom, are being taken from us. We can't hang out with our communities. We can't travel and see our families. Um, many of us are losing jobs, losing income. So much is at loss. And many of us are are worried if we get this disease, it's a coin toss, we die. Um, and if, if this is from God, it's a wake-up call to say, turn to the one who truly holds the world in his hands, the one who can offer you more than, um, you know, some amount of pleasure and comfort in this life, but the one who offers resurrected, eternal life with him, the one who forgives all iniquity, the one who will one day wipe every tear, heal every sickness, um, 
the one who will, uh, the one who has already given himself in love. And so if there's a lesson, if God has a message for us in coronavirus, it's that this is not something outside of his control and that God is not surprised. Um, and that one day God will wipe away every tear, every tear that's coming now, God will wipe away. God will restore what has been lost and the world will be the way it's meant to be. There will be no illness and sickness. There will be no pandemic in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, because Jesus already took our iniquities. He took our illnesses. He took everything upon him and he rose victorious over the grave. So that's my thoughts on how we think about um, this plague that we're living in and how I think that we should respond. Um, so here we go. Let me, let me pray. God, I thank you that you um, do give us the ability to see injustice and to say this is not how it should be. We thank you that you have a good plan to restore all things, not to do away with what you've created, but to restore it. And the way you came to restore it was by entering in and experiencing the evil and injustice in this world and overcoming. God, I thank you that you send your Holy Spirit to turn our hearts to you and that we can, in Christ, overcome this world and we can be agents of peace and hope because we have this hope in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.